know one and all. Welcome back to Cafe Penumbra, your cyber cafe where we exchange ideas about current events, hot topics, storytelling, plus all the things. Please do visit us and interact on our sister platform, the Cafe Penumbra Discord server. See the link in the show notes or at seraphimpenumbra.com. In today's episode, What Are You Grateful For?, we're discussing the progressive business model and philosophy behind Cafe Gratitude. But first, from the headlines, a review of the WGA SAG-AFTRA strike. What it is, why it's happening, what's at stake, and why we care. The ongoing WGA SAG-AFTRA, that's the Writers Guild of America, Screen Actors Guild, and the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists AFTRA strike, is frequently making headlines in the news. And in fact, Tuesday, the WGA strike was declared over after nearly five months, according to the Associated Press. Board members from the union approved a contract agreement with studios, bringing the industry at least partly back after a historic halt in production. Late-night talk shows will likely be the first shows that will resume, and scripted shows will take longer to return, with actors still on strike and no negotiations yet on the horizon. The new three-year agreement includes significant wins in the main areas the writers had fought for, compensation, length of employment, size of staffs, and control of artificial intelligence. Part of it has to do with a wage increase relevant to inflation, and another part of it has to do with changing technology, how we consume our entertainment. Prior to streaming services, union members would get compensated in residuals or royalties, so whenever the work is broadcast, they earn a portion of the revenue generated from it. Since streaming services began, no part of the money being generated by watching reruns on Netflix, Hulu, or any other number of streaming services available today compensates anyone from the original production, except for the higher-ups at the corporations who finance them. Another, far more sinister element on the table is being compensated for AI imagery or digital replicas of an actor's likeness is used. I think another equally interesting element is the disparity between where the money goes, not just between the corporate executives, but behind the scene workers like hair and makeup, lighting, camera operators, post-production. And part of what I think is interesting about that is that in another industry, we're seeing the same problems repeated. A few people at the top are making all the money off the backs of the people who are basically begging for crumbs. It's certainly a good argument for labor unions. The Guild Agreement also succeeded in creating new residual payments based on the popularity of streaming shows, which includes bonus for writers who worked on shows enjoying bigger successes on the streaming platforms. Also, of significant note, according to an article in Forbes.com, the streamers have agreed to share viewership data to the WGA, which I think is kind of a major win as a chief complaint was the lack of transparency. The people have had enough. And now the breakdown. Pumpkin spice season is here, and that means it's time for all those memes to make the rounds. For me, I'm not offended by it. I will say there is no pumpkin in that. It's sugar, and what we used to call winter spices, 
which you would use in a pumpkin pie, for example, or any number of baked goods. I could go for a winter spice latte with coconut milk, but not pumpkin spice flavor because I don't know what's in it. Probably mostly sugar or fake sugar, but certainly not pumpkin. Pumpkin spice. Kind of sounds like a stage name, doesn't it? In preparing for today's episode, I was reminded of Dan Price, who was described by some as a lunatic because he took a pay cut, a significant pay cut, in order to give his employees a $70,000 minimum wage, which was up from a $48,000 minimum wage. It wasn't a minimum wage. It was just that was the lowest paid employee on his staff. But even $48,000 was not anything to sneeze at back in 2015. I feel like this kind of radical thinking is what engenders actual change. I know that for a while, based on research, the result of that experiment was mostly positive in terms of employee loyalty, productivity. But I think at the time there were about 120 people employed at its company, and not surprisingly, some people left, particularly those who felt that the people who benefited most didn't deserve it. Naturally, it probably worked out best for the people whose salaries went from the 48000 to the 70000 which at the time was a number price determined to be the amount a person needs to live a normal life. Just for perspective, today's money, $70,000 would be worth about $90,600. I was recently talking about Cafe Gratitude in another conversation. I worked for Cafe Gratitude in the mid to late aughts in Berkeley, California. I actually have talked about this very little, but there is so much to unpack. But this was a radical or at least progressive model, partly because it was in restaurant terms, a fully pooled house, which in a second I'll explain how and why that is a progressive model. But while we're talking about wage inequality, I assume most people aren't aware that perhaps the worst job in a restaurant is the dishwasher. It's dirty, wet work. I have done it. You get your socks wet. And no matter what you do, it's you're in the kitchen. So it's hot. It's dirty work. And uh, you're, you're just doing the worst of the worst. The people who actually prepare the food make a little bit more, typically, usually significantly more. But you could argue it takes more skill and training to be proficient as a cook. So that kind of tracks. And then you have the servers. I know there are many other positions, but I'm just trying to paint in broad strokes here. Servers generally make 2 to $3 an hour, unless you're in California, where if you work at a restaurant full-time, the employer has to provide health insurance as well as a higher hourly wage, which is also pretty revolutionary for the industry. And as most of us know, servers earn their living in tips. And if I'm honest, part of what really motivated me to become the best server I could possibly be was the tips. I used to compete with myself and see if I could always do better than the day before, for example. I have had dozens of conversations between servers and bartenders and cooks, and the cooks do occasionally have some resentment for servers because by comparison, it's harder to work in the hot kitchen than to serve, yet the servers generally earn more than the kitchen staff. And in a lot of those conversations, the kitchen staff generally also acknowledge 
that staying clean and dry and having to deal with all of the idiosyncrasies of not only the patrons, but pretty much everyone in the building at any given time, is not really worth the pay increase. Then, of course, you have the bartenders, and in most places, they are the top earners in any establishment. And of course, you also have managers, supervisors, bussers, and depending on the establishment, there could be a multitude of other positions. And even after having, air quote, enjoyed a living as a tipped employee, there is a cost to consider. Usually, those are the benefits, but also being at odds with most of the schedules of the rest of the world. And when you've had enough and you try to get an hourly job, good luck matching the same money that you made serving tables. That said, it is kind of an American concept that a server isn't really paid a living wage by the establishment, but by the consumer, which... As a child, I remember my reaction when my mother explained why she left cash on the table after a meal and being horrified that a business we just paid for a meal didn't take care of their own employees. And it really struck me when the legislation passed when in California that restaurants had to provide insurance, a lot of establishments compensated themselves for this by adding a line item to the bill along with the tax that they casually explained was to defray the added costs mandated by the government, and people paid it. It's no secret that restaurants are a tough business, and in my professional opinion, any restaurant without a liquor license really can't afford to adequately staff their restaurants. I think it would be very interesting to see what would happen if you were to crunch the numbers and figure out, like take a couple of actual restaurants with their current menu prices and figure out, calculate, I don't even know how you would do it, but Smart people, I imagine, can. But what would be the business volume and what would be the price increase in order for the business to be able to pay a living wage to all the employees that work there? With benefits. I'm curious. I know for myself, if I knew I was going to make a decent living wage, which is not minimum wage, by the way, but it does kind of take the incentive out of it. And it doesn't allow for the occasional boon that you have. I honestly don't know if I would have stuck with it. Bartending, on the other hand, if the money was consistent and good, maybe. But I really loved bartending. And if the money were taken out of the equation and I could just focus on doing my very best and engaging the guests 100%. Because, of course, the dark side of being a tipped employee is that often your success is at the mercy of the weather or any of number of things that can impact what you actually make. So it's not consistent or reliable. I wouldn't be surprised at all if we saw an overhaul in tipping culture. I think we'd also see a significant increase in the bill, but if we're not tipping on top of the bill, would that kind of balance out? I don't know. But at Cafe Gratitude, and to be clear, I'm talking about the Cafe Gratitude of, I think, about 2007. Cafe Gratitude was a vegan raw restaurant chain that had sprung up based on a board game, if you can believe it asking probative questions geared toward mindful presence. Raw was really a trendy movement based on the idea that the sooner you eat your food to the time that it was alive, the better for your body, and obviously, fresh is king. And the food was mostly amazing. Although I find that eating vegan and vegetarian cuisine sometimes loses its way when it's trying to pattern itself after its non-vegan and non-vegetarian counterparts like tofu shaped like beef chunks, meant to make faux beef stew. Like, if we're choosing not to eat meat, why are we eating meat-shaped not-meat food? 
And Kef and Gratitude didn't do that, mostly because tofu is perceived to be unsustainable because of the amount of energy and resources uh, required to, to process it. But they did pattern the menu after a traditional American food, which was kind of problematic. They used a lot of nuts to make cheeses for, uh, for menu items like lasagna and pizza. But in a raw restaurant, everything is served chilled, even the soup, which would be fine. But their lasagna was not hot, cheesy, or gloopy, which in my opinion is part of what makes lasagna a comfort food to begin with. Theirs was a cold, molded vegetable dish that was amazing and hearty and texturally pleasing, um, but just not lasagna. And the pizza was lots of these clever spreads with the, um, the nut cheeses and sprouts and delicious. And like I said, the texture was very pleasing, um, just not pizza. And the problematic part was if you were to eat your way through the menu the same way that you might in a traditional American restaurant, it's just a little bit out of balance. All those nuts, um, like if you were to have an appetizer and an entree and some kind of a drink, like you might be really like over-consuming in one area and under-consuming in another. So one of the gross side effects, if people didn't choose wisely, was how the food would actually hit. And that's all I will say about that. One of the things that I did think was very interesting is that it's uh, a very American concept that everything is in full supply all the time. So probably it was 2020, the first time any of us went into a grocery store that wasn't completely stocked up. And in most restaurants, it's bad form to run out of a menu item. People get angry, but at Gratitude, it was with full intention that they ran out of everything every day because of the amount of time it had been since the food still had life in it. Which isn't to say that it was rotten, just less vital, right? Coming from a background where when you're low on something in a traditional restaurant, you have a 68 list and an 86 list when you run all the way out of it. So when you get to work, one of the things that you do to prepare yourself for the day is to find out what you're out of and what you're running out of. Gratitude was a turning point for my hospitality career in a way because it was the first time I really had pieced together that with all of my years of experience, I'd seen dozens of businesses trying to do the same thing, but with varying degrees of success. So I started thinking about how to monetize that, and I did open a dialogue with them and said that I would love to apply my years of experience in a traditional venue and apply the best of those ideas to your model, ways of being more efficient while still being radical and progressive. And all that was inspired by an, an encounter with a cook who told me in the middle of a very busy rush that we were out of several of the things that I had ordered on several tables. And I was not great about receiving that information. And they did have this kind of language that they spoke. And apparently I was supposed to reply with, okay, great. And I got into trouble because I didn't. And so we literally had this meeting where I got reprimanded for not saying, okay, great. To which I replied, it wasn't okay and it wasn't great because you should have told me before I sold so much of any menu item to almost every table that I have that we were running out. So instead, I had to stop what I was doing and go to every single table and resell menu items, which is going to totally set back the entire dinner service because you didn't get it together enough to share your information in a timely way. Not okay, not great. Now, 
It's nothing new at all to have altercations between front of house and back of house in any restaurant. And it usually has to do with the tension that the cook uh, knows that the server makes at least twice what the cook does. But at Gratitude, this was not the case. And in fact, when you think about it, the truly progressive thing about Gratitude is that the dishwasher, remember with the wet socks doing all the grunt work, ended up being the highest paid employee in the establishment because they were in the pool and had the longest shifts. Progressive, and at the same time, I remember feeling, well, that's great for the dishwasher, but even in this updated paradigm, the establishment isn't paying the wage the consumer is. And if the distribution of wealth is fair, it was the servers who were subsidizing it. The other part of gratitude, really the reason that I wanted to discuss it, was the game. The Abounding River is an exploration board game that introduces people to an unfamiliar view of being abundance. According to BoardGameGeek.com, who also report that it is currently out of print. I don't recall if I actually ever played the game itself, but the venue was very attractive and the tabletops had the board game board uh, on the tables under glass and there were uh, the the cards with the questions on them and the game pieces were, um, you know, strewn about. The illustrations from the board game were very illustratorly, I'm sure you can imagine, and a little hippy-dippy nutty crunchy, but of course this was Berkeley, California, and their flagship was in San Francisco. The component of the game that I want to focus on is the questions. There would always be a question of the day, and as far as I know, they came from the game. And then as a staff member, when you got to work, you'd have to participate in a clearing, which was presented as a means of checking whatever may be on your mind so that you can be fully present at work, which isn't a bad idea except for two things. Sometimes you'd get a customer who didn't want to play. And I do feel that when you're going out for dinner, it can be uncomfortable to be forced to process in public uh, before having a meal. And the other thing is that for the staff, the questions tended to be far more probative. And for myself, again, doing some processing about what I'm being present to or whatever was more intrusive than I was comfortable with before going on the floor and being enlightened for the general public. Not that I'm calling myself enlightened. In fact, I often used to amuse during my commute to work about something that I could talk about that would convince them that I was playing the game, but without any personal cost. I did appreciate parts of the teachings, and I went to a couple of their workshops and tried on some of the ideas. I had been to Omega back in 95, so I was very familiar and comfortable with the language. And not surprisingly, one of the concepts that I struggled with as a younger person, and even sometimes now as an older person, was the concept of gratitude itself. One of the things or modes of speech that Matthew and Terses utilized in their game and workshops was this idea of the scarcity paradigm and this suggestion that one of the things that may be keeping you from what you want is the fact that you want something that you don't already have. And the scarcity paradigm, or the way that I related to it, was being present to what you feel like you're lacking. Basically means that you aren't being present to what you have. And I remember, you know, it's no secret that I grew up incredibly poor and apparently I was clinging to it. And I remember sitting at one of their workshops feeling pretty shitty because I felt like I had nothing and they were making me wrong for not being grateful for it. And I was just feeling so alone and thinking, please look at my life and tell me where all this empowering sense of gratitude is supposed to come from exactly. 
And to be perfectly honest, I do feel ashamed to admit that. But I'm just being open and honest about my experience as a human who at that time was very much clinging on to scarcity. I never did end up having any kind of epiphany, though. But I remember at one point in the last few years or so considering um, providing foster care. And the reason was that I had this idea of what it might be like to be a young person whose grown-ups have failed you so profoundly for whatever reason that you had to face a life in the foster system, maybe the life that I could provide with my meager existence would seem incredibly wonderful to those kids. Maybe I could impact even one person's life in a positive way, and that was something I could be wholly grateful for. I don't think that I have it fully mastered, but I do often realize when I genuinely feel grateful for what I have, I think it sometimes comes from comes from seeing people who don't have enough. So sometimes then I start to judge myself, like my sense of gratitude should come from a place other than seeing someone else's scarcity. But I'm still working on it. I'm still a work in progress. One thing I have noticed several times, especially recently, is that I'll notice that my first reaction to a situation is to reflect on my own gratitude. And then that kind of lifts me up because I then feel grateful that I feel grateful, if that makes any sense. And that's a really good feeling. So back to Cafe Gratitude. I was having a wonderful conversation with an old friend recently about alchemy. And that's kind of a word that gives me a glimmer. Glimmer, I'm using as the opposite of a trigger. Of course, The Alchemist is one of my favorite books of all time, which... (laughs) Most of my favorite books are juvenile literature. I don't know what that says about me, but I'm not embarrassed. I know that the word alchemy calls up the turning of lead into gold, but that is not at all what any of it is all about. But I happened to uh, be in this conversation and I happened to relay that last bit about my relationship with Cafe Gratitude. And he mentioned that they mostly have closed. And I did a little bit of research, and I think it's kind of sad, really. I look back, and I feel like, other than some of the altercations, overall, I learned a lot. I know they had a farm, or a couple of farms, uh, outside of town, where they would literally grow the food for the restaurants, and they would host uh, retreats, and of course, people lived there and stewarded the land to help grow the food, and I just thought that was all fantastic. I remember uh, when I learned about Gracie's here in Providence, we talked about last time um, or a couple of episodes ago that they had a a rooftop garden. And I was so excited because you can have commerce that does good things in creative and sometimes obvious and easy to duplicate ways. It's kind of sad the way that it ended. And I don't, this, this particular episode isn't about that. So I won't go into it. Feel free to look it up. I, I just think that it was amazing in many ways. Uh, But if I do know Matthew and Tercy's at all, I'm sure they're feeling grateful. I'd love to hear from you. What was your experience, if any, with gratitude or cafe gratitude? What do you think about tipping culture? What's on your mind? On the next episode, the roles are reversed. My childhood friend and confidant will be here in the studio with me, asking me all of your questions. What do you want to know? Plus, (laughs) yeah. Plus answers to the questions I get asked most frequently. Until then, bonsoir! 
Thank you for stopping by Cafe Penumbra. I'm your host, Seraphim Penumbra, wishing you a jolly new now. Today's show has not been sponsored. As always, let's keep the conversation alive. And remember, it's only a conversation when ideas are exchanged. Please take advantage of our community platform Discord server. And if you're interested in a way to support this show, you can buy me a coffee or get yourself some retail therapy in our shop that is so fabulous it has two Ps. What you have just witnessed was recreated from actual events as they happen live for the very first time. Today's programming has been brought to you in part by the letter 7 and the number blue. Cafe Penumbra is produced by PLC Media Lab.